So could you just start by saying your name and saying what your current title is? Yeah, so my name's Stephanie Tierney. Um, I'm a departmental lecturer and senior researcher at the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, which is at the University of Oxford. Uh, and in the Nuffield Department of... And in the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Health Sciences. Right. So it's Primary Care Health Sciences, not Primary Health Care Sciences. I've always found that puzzling. But anyway... <laughs> Yeah, I suppose because we're interested in primary care as an entity, mm. as a setting. Mm. Mm. Um, and uh, first of all, uh, just briefly, uh, can you tell me how you first got interested in uh, the, the area that you're interested in now and give me the kind of headlines for your career progression until you reached your okay. post here? So, um, gosh, it's a long career history, but I've always been in academia, university settings, I've always worked as a researcher. My background was I did a first degree in journalism studies and enjoyed the sort of more qualitative bits of that where you're talking to people, finding out their stories. Then I went on to do a master's in disability studies. Um, and again, I was interested in thinking about theory, but also the more applied part of that work. Um, and then started working at an organization called the Center for Evidence-Based Social Services. Whilst there, I did my PhD. And where's that? Uh, that was at the University of Exeter. Right. Um, and whilst there, I did my PhD as well, uh, part-time, and uh, just enjoyed the qualitative part of that work. So and what was the topic of your PhD? My PhD. So that was, um, I don't know, the, can't remember the exact title, but it was something around the effectiveness of psychosocial interventions for adolescents with anorexia nervosa. Right. Mm. So it was on eating disorders. It was... Uh, systematic review, meta-analysis, then qualitative interviews with um, children or young people, their parents and health providers as mm, well. Mm. Um, and then uh, from that I've done a lot of research, so I, I've, that was at Exeter, then I worked at University of Manchester doing research there around long-term conditions, uh, diabetes, cystic fibrosis, heart failure, cleft lip and palate, so mainly qualitative research there. But the question was always about social intervention, was it? Social prescribing. Social, not necessarily social prescribing, but the impact of um, social, the social environment on people who had these conditions. Yes, it was always more around the non-medical issue, so yes. I wasn't looking at drugs and things like that. I was looking at heart failure and physical activity and how we encourage people to be more physically active if they've got heart failure. Um, it was looking at... Um, patients with cystic fibrosis, their experiences of transitioning from paediatric care to adult care. So it was more the, it was about service delivery and also about experiences of living with a condition. So there were always long-term conditions. Um, then I moved to the University of Warwick where I was looking at compassion in healthcare and the meaning of compassion, what that meant, because there was um, a big report um, that was suggesting that there was a lack of compassion in the healthcare at the time, and there was uh, funding to do some research on compassion in healthcare. So I did some work with health professionals around their views of compassion. Also supported a PhD student to do some work around self-care and self-compassion in nurses, among nurses. Um, and then after that, I've moved here to the University of Oxford where I started doing some work on social prescribing by initially just doing a, a, a review, um, a, a realist review, it was a particular type of, of review of the literature. But from that then we've sort of 
done lots of work on social prescribing mm. as an intervention. Well, let's, um, let's just go into that a little bit more. Yeah. So there's various terms there that I... We'll start with social prescribing. So what... what how, how has social prescribing come to be a thing that people are interested in? Mm -hmm. What is it and, and what effect is it um, intended to have? So if we start with what it is, um, it's the idea that people's health and well-being is not just affected by their physical status, their physiology. It's affected by where they live, where they grow, where they work. So those non-medical issues that may come into people's lives, like loneliness, like housing problems, like finance, these are all things that people often affect their health and well-being, but it's not the primary, yeah, it's, the, it's, it's not what maybe their physical issue is. And not the thing that a GP would necessarily latch onto yes. when they come to see them. Yeah. Or they might latch onto it, they might identify it, but then not know what to do to help that person because they've not got the training in those more non-medical issues or they haven't got time and resources. They've... So this is where social prescribing comes in to support people with those issues that are really having a detrimental impact on people's lives but aren't solvable by a pill or some sort of procedure. Um, and I suppose it's been around in the UK since probably the 90s, but in patches. Um, so it depended on where you lived. But in 2019, in the NHS long-term plan, the NHS made a commitment to employ people called link workers in primary care. Um, and link workers are, a, we talk about the social prescribing pathway where you will have a referrer, usually the GP, You'll have the link worker who's the connecting resource and then you have what the link worker connects people to. So you've got those three elements and link workers are just key to social prescribing. Um, so this commitment from the NHS to support social prescribing through employing link workers to work in primary care was sort of a big thing at the time. And is there one or more in every GP practice now? Well, there should be, there's funding, NHS funding, for at least one per primary care network. So primary care networks are sort of often an amalgamation of two, three practices. Um, some are just one practice if it's a very big practice, but usually it's an amalgamation of, so the link worker might be serving more than one practice. Sometimes as well, there's other link workers who are employed through different routes, um, but some practices, so might have one link worker, as I say, serving two different practices who are part of that PCN. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and what are the kinds of services that the link worker is linking the person to? I mean, that's really varied depending, it's about personalised care and what that, they, we talk about in social prescribing, not what matters, what, not what's the matter with me, but what matters to me. Um, so what people could be referred on to is really as unique as their individual needs. Um, but often it's to do with like, it, so it might be referring them to bigger organisations like Citizens Advice, like housing trusts, um, but it could be linking them to much smaller organisations like a Knit and Natter group or a, um, something at the local library that's going on. Could be referring them to cultural activities like go on at the Ashmolean Museum here, could be engaging them in some sort of, we call green social prescribing, so doing things outdoors with nature. So it's, it's very, very diverse. And I think part of it depends on what the person needs, but also it depends what's available in the local area. Some areas like 
Oxford City Centre have got loads going on that the link worker could refer to. Whereas if you're in a more rural setting, it's more difficult. But also I think it's around what the link worker knows um, and what they've tried themselves sometimes. Um, so our research, and I'm jumping ahead here, but our research part of it found that if the link workers have maybe been involved in going to a museum themselves, they're more likely then to recommend that as an option for people that they work with. So the other phrase you used was a realist review. Mm -hmm. what, what does that mean? So realist research is around the idea that often what we find is it's not a case of something works or doesn't work. It might work for some people in some situations. So it tries to tease out that not does something work or not, but what works, for whom, why, and in what circumstances. So it thinks very much about what context, it thinks about outcomes in terms of mechanisms that have contributed, caused that outcome. So an outcome is attached to a mechanism. And then you think about well, what context is needed for that mechanism to occur to then create the outcome. So Can you, you give an example of that? Do say all that again, but with an, a specific example. Um, so it might be, um, I should have written one down, I can't think of one <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, when a link worker has time to talk to the patient, the patient doesn't feel rushed. That's the mechanism. So the outcome is they're willing to open up, is the outcome. So the context is time and having time. The mechanism might be not feeling pressured, not feeling rushed. And then the outcome is being able to open up and being willing to open up. So we think about it in we think, think about our data in terms of context mechanism outcome configurations. We talk about CMOCs, context mechanism outcome configurations. So we don't think about an outcome in isolation. It's always about well, what mechanism might have caused that outcome and what context is needed to trigger that mechanism to cause that outcome. And is that more difficult to get across as, a, as something to, as it were, sell to the NHS or any other funder um, than something that just says, if you refer older people to events at museums, they feel less lonely? I think, I think it's becoming more well known among policy and um, departments like the NHS. I think the way that we probably would um, disseminate it is not necessarily as CMOCs, contact mechanism outcome configurations. We'd talk about findings in a, in a way that would be appropriate. So if you want to have this outcome, this is what you might need to think about in terms of your context, but we won't maybe use the word context, because you need to bring about this uh, response from the participants or the uh, service provider mm, or the, mm. yeah, so we, the way we phrased it, we wouldn't talk about context mechanisms, outcomes, but we would, but in a roundabout way. Right, so as right, I say, yes. if you want this outcome, think about this situation setting because it might lead to this mechanism so, mm. it's, it, yeah, it's, we wouldn't uh, say use those terms exactly, but we would try and phrase it in a way that would make recommendations based on the outcome that they're interested in. Mm. Then they might need to think about what context is required to trigger the mechanism to bring about that mm. outcome. Mm. So it's, it's more complicated than just looking at the referral at one end and, and what the, uh, the patient might do at the other end. It's very much looking at the, the process of delivery. Mm -hmm. that gets from one of those to yeah. the other. Yeah. 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 So it's sort of pulling apart the black box between 
referral and outcome. It's all the bits in between. Yeah. Mm, mm. So you were you were engaged in that review, or had you finished that review when we got to the beginning of 2020 and yeah, COVID I finished, raised its head? <laughs> yeah. So I finished that review. I started working here in February 2018. I think we finished the review about a year later, and then we used this review to support an f- application to the National Institute for Health and Care Research, the NIHR, for some further funding to do some primary research, because obviously the review was based on other people's research. So this was trying to find our own data by going, um, by, but it was based very much on what we'd found in the review and where we felt the gaps were still in knowledge based on what we'd done from the review. Mm. Um, so that was in 2019 that I think we put that application in. We heard about it, I'm trying to recall, probably we, we heard we got the funding in 2020, but I think it was around, I don't know whether COVID, it was after COVID? I think it was, because I think some of the reviewer comments were around how we deal with sort of the ongoing COVID issues. Mm, mm. Um, so that was for the link, because there's two projects, we worked on one project during the pandemic itself, which was funded by the Arts and we'll, Humanities we'll Research Council. We'll get on to that, we'll get on to that. Don't rush me. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's see, given that we've started talking about the pandemic, um, can, can I just ask you when, if you remember um, when you first heard about the pandemic and how you came to realise that it might actually impact on the work that you were doing? Yeah, so I remember having some conversations here because we've got quite a few GPs who work here and they were sort of mentioning things around, that was the January, you know, in the media, they'd started talking about stuff in China. I remember having, we organised a knowledge exchange event, trying to, what we were doing was bringing together people at St Luke's just over the way there. Um, We were bringing people together in, in this building to talk about social prescribing for people with mild cognitive impairment. Um, and that was an in-person event and quite a few people called off because they weren't feeling good, they had sore throats, so that was February 2020. Um, And then I remember sort of by March you started to think something is happening here. Um, And I remember that the announcement the 23rd of March 2020 came on my brother's 40th birthday, so it's sort of embedded in my head, Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so yes, so having got that far and you you had just got this this new funding um to do your primary research how was that going to be affected by the fact that there was a pandemic going yeah, on yeah i'm trying to remember i think we hadn't quite yes we hadn't got the funding we got we got confirmation of the funding in august 2020 all right okay but um there's this two-stage process to the application so i remember we had to put in stage two we got asked to put in a stage one and must have been the end of 2019 mm. and then got asked to put the stage two in by February 2020 um, and then that comes back with review further comments um, so that would have been over the summer 2020 and I remember one of them was around the Covid situation mm. Mm. Um, so I suppose naively I thought that it wouldn't have lasted as long as it did um, but we we delayed the start of that project until August 2021. Um, so and, and what was the what was the project setting out to do? What kind of primary data were you hoping to collect? So the idea, um, it's what we have done, is to go into. We worked with seven link workers, social prescribing link workers, 
in different parts of England, spent three weeks with them, shadowing really what they did, watching what they did, talking to people as well that they worked with, so other health professionals, the voluntary sector, patients. Um, some of the interviews with the patients and the voluntary sector and health professionals we did remotely after that three-week period. But it was going into surgeries, um, as I say, for three weeks um, and actually being with the link worker and watching what they did, how they interacted with patients, but with all the staff, what meetings they went to, looking at what was in the surgery around social prescribing, if anything, were there any posters. So, yeah, that the issue, we knew that we had to physically be in spaces and this was a time when GP practices were closing in terms of uh, they were doing stuff more remotely over the pandemic. So did you, so when did you actually start collecting, is that you just, I think you just told me, you didn't actually start till 2021. So the actual project started in August 2021. Yes, by which time vaccination was in place. And yes, so, um, um, I mean, primary care still was running during the pandemic, but it was just that people weren't going into the yeah. buildings mm. as much, including link workers, they were doing a lot of their work remotely. Mm. Um, so we actually first, our first set of data collection we worked with two sites in this time last year so we yeah that was 2021 mm. november time mm. november mm. to december um and it was a bit of a knife edge because we were wondering are we going to be going back into a lockdown are we going to be able to do this because there was another peak yeah. over the winter wasn't there yeah. are our researchers going to get ill and not be able to do the data collection um, are the surgeries going to be accommodating and want another body in the surgery? Um, what guidelines do we need to follow? So there was a lot of sort of liaising with the surgeries who were great. They were really, you know, sort of still very open to us going down there and, you know, we did it. Um, but it was a bit anxiety provoking as, as sort of a research team. Are we mm. going to be able to mm. go in and do it? And your, I mean, your research question was specifically looking at loneliness in older people. Is that, is, is that right? No. no. So oh, this, right. this project, this HSNDR, uh, was looking at the implementation of link workers in primary care. Oh, right. Okay. So how are link workers being implemented in the primary care based right. on that idea that there'd been this funding in 2019? Mm, mm. How are they being implemented? And obviously how they were being implemented was being affected by COVID yes, as well. Yes, yes, yes. Um, because they were either working remotely or um, they were getting involved, at least at the beginning, with some of the sort of admin for the, um, the injections. They were doing a lot of checking up on people, that they'd got medication, that they'd got food, being able to access food, especially older people who might not be using the internet as much. Um, so it's quite interesting um, and we had ongoing conversations. I think that's one of the things that we did, although we got the funding in August 2020 and we didn't start for a year later, we were constantly sort of communicating with link workers who might be involved in the project. Um, and it's quite interesting over that year, although it wasn't data as such, we were talking to them about how things were going and how they were finding the, the, the pandemic and what they were doing to sort of work in these circumstances. Mm, mm. And, and were they able to deliver what they were aiming to deliver? Uh, Not so much. In term, well, I think they, they were still providing a valued service to the primary care, but connecting people to things in the community was much harder because buildings were closed. A lot of voluntary sector organisations didn't run because staff were on furlough. So they were perhaps doing a different role at that time in terms of 
being the support for people, phoning people up once a week or every two weeks to check they were doing okay, as I say, checking they had their medication, checking they had access to food. Um, so they were doing a slightly more holding role of that mm -hmm. person rather than connecting them to things in the community that might support their non-medical needs. Mm -hmm. And, and um, so where, where did you go from there? Um, uh, what findings did you have from that study that you could um, take on to? Well, that, that study is still in progress. Oh, that study's still going Yeah, on. so mm. we've done, we did the first two sites in Feb, uh, um, end of last year, November, December. Then we did another two sites in February, March 2022. We did another two sites in June, July 2022. And then we did the seventh and final site in uh, September this year. Mm. And now what we're trying to do is to follow up patients that we talked to about nine months later. So we talked to them, maybe this time last year, we're trying to contact them again to see how things are going. Has their non-medical issue got better? Um, if so, you know, what did they do? Was anything that the link worker did with them, was it helpful or not? Um, so yeah, we, mm, that, mm. That, so we I mean, how, how many points of contact would a, a single patient have with a, a single link worker? I mean, is it a one-off, um, try this, yeah. or, or do they take on a, a kind of um, more continuous support role? So it's very varied. Um, how link workers work is not one set thing. So some places we've been to, it's been they've got six sessions maximum, that's it. Um, usually starts with a sort of 40 to an hour, 40 minute to an hour meeting initially with the patient to give them time to tell their story and then meetings after that as and when needed. Some link workers were much more um, transactional in terms of, okay, that's your problem, here's a leaflet or a number that you might want to phone. But then we're talking to other link workers who are maybe seeing patients for two years, they've got them on their caseloads and because they feel there's not enough support in the community, they are taking on a sort of holding role of that person. Mm, mm. Um, I think that's becoming more and more difficult because as link workers are becoming more well known in their area, more people are being referred, there's more need at the moment with the cost of living crisis and um, you know post-COVID mental health problems. So yeah, um, it does vary though um, in terms of how often they'll see someone. Mm, mm. So yeah, so I was uh, yes, I think I was must be talking about the different study, which is the the one where you've written a couple of reports yeah. about um, uh, the, the the pandemic and working with cultural institutions. Yeah. So tell me about that study. How did that come about? Yeah, so we've had a good uh, working relationship with the gardens, libraries, and museums team here at Oxford, and I think a call came out from the uh, UKRI um, funding, and this was the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And yeah, we must have thought this sounds like a good chance to do a piece of work together. We are interested particularly in older people and their um, experiences because they were perhaps more at risk of the sort of consequences of COVID. Not so much the disease, but the isolation. Yeah, yeah. well, also, I mean, um, they, they were, you know, in terms of hospitalisation, I oh, think, yes, at they the were, beginning. Of course, they were yeah. more well. um, So we thought they'd be an interesting group to work with. Um, and we know that a lot of the settings that they may get support from um, were closing. So, yeah, we were interested in sort of exploring 
how social prescribing might work within the cultural sector during a COVID pandemic. Um, but I suppose what we found, I think a lot of the findings were more generic than that and probably still apply even though we're not in that time now um, in terms of lockdown. So this was a project, it was um, another realist review, but what we call a rapid or restrictive realist review where we did it in six months. Um, and then that helped to inform the next part, which were interviews with healthcare, uh, sorry, with cultural sector providers and also with older people where we explored in a bit more detail some of the things that we found in the review or where there were gaps in knowledge in the review. Um, and I mean, the, oh, and we also did a, a questionnaire. We sent a questionnaire to link workers, um, electronic online questionnaire about their use of uh, the cultural sector as part of social prescribing. So do they connect people to the cultural sector? If so, what sort of organisations? How do they find out about what's going on in the cultural sector? Um, yeah, and I think, I mean, what we found was this idea of the importance of tailoring what's offered to older people to meet their needs, but the difficulties that could stem, especially from the pandemic when, you know, things were closing, when there was lack of resources. The other thing was around how you message a social prescribing offer in the cultural sector. So for some people, the cultural sector might be something that they've never contemplated, never set foot in, it's not for me, and it's a no-go at the beginning. So link workers almost having to do some preparatory work with the person and saying there's this great group going on at the museum where you know people who are in a similar situation to you might be quite isolated come together talk about things you know what do you think about giving that a go um, and I think it depends partly on the the way that that link worker messaged it to mm. the person whether mm. they would then take it up yes because if they've never been to a museum before they might just think that's not where I go yes yeah <laughs> yes and this research talked about sort of four broad benefits that older people might get from engaging with the cultural sector. Although I think these are benefits that would be for any age group. So one was around immersion. So the idea that you were distracted for a short period from your worries because you're doing something that's culturally engaging. The second one was around this idea of feeling psychologically safe and held in a setting um, these settings are often, you know, like the museum, even libraries are calm and peaceful. Um, so you could get that feeling of being psychologically or emotionally held in these settings. Another one was connecting. So obviously connecting with the cultural providers, but also other people who are attending activities. And then the fourth one was this idea of um, transformation. So from engaging with cultural activities, you could increase your skills, your knowledge, your self-confidence, and that would transform how you saw yourself as an individual and, you know, your place in the world. So that was sort of the, there was a continuum, I think, from immersion, which was short-lived, but it, maybe some people just needed that distracting from their worries, through to transformation, which was perhaps a longer-term process, but was perhaps more sustainable in terms of benefits, health and well-being. So these are benefits that you um, uh, concluded could, could potentially come from these in engagements. Um, what, what was the evidence that supported those uh, particular four things? Is that what... Yeah. So I, that came from the review, yeah. but also our conversations with um, the, link, uh, the, social, the cultural providers, but the older people as well. Yes, yes. So they articulated those, yeah. those, um, those benefits. Yeah. 
Um, and so did any of the, 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 the GLAM, the, the Oxford providers that you were working with, specifically um, put on uh, uh, offers that could be delivered e even when face-to-face -face meetings weren't possible? Yeah, so we didn't get so involved in the, in the provision of offers, but I know that they did. Mm. I know that a lot of stuff transferred online. Some of the older people we talked to mentioned that it was qualitatively different to the experiences that they had face to face and that if you were working with a link worker maybe they needed to prepare people. Um, the other thing was they suggested that um, you couldn't just take what you did face to face and put it online, that providers needed to think carefully about how they transferred things online and how it might come across to older people. There was a sense that older people did use online technology so we shouldn't just think that it's out of bounds for these individuals. but. Some older people might need encouragement and support in using online resources. And then some people just said, I don't want to do anything online. It, you know, it's, I, I don't like the, they talked about embodiment, well, they didn't use the term, but that idea of that lack of seeing the body and, you know, that it felt more depers more, yeah, less personal yeah. Um, mm. than face to face. So they waited until buildings became open again. Mm. Mm. And, um, and what's next? <laughs> so you've written up that stage. Yes, of so we've written up that research. Um, I mean, our link worker study that I mentioned at the beginning is still ongoing. Yeah. There's a number of areas that I think will come out of that that we'll be doing, hopefully, future research on. Um, with the gardens, libraries and museums, um, what we're trying to do now is with the gardens, libraries and museums team is looking at different programs or activities and, and, and using some of our learning to inform those activities. So for example, one of the things that came out was the idea of having a buddy to go to these things with. So yeah, some of the programs that they're doing, they're thinking about, well, how do we in yeah, introduce this idea of a buddy? Would that be another patient or a, or a, a volunteer? Yeah, something? probably be a volunteer, yeah. I think, is how it's been talked about um, and what training that person might need. Um, so that the patient or the individual involved in social prescribing doesn't become dependent on that individual. Mm. Um, and then we've also, the, the work that I mentioned before as well about mild cognitive impairment and social prescribing is an area that, you know, I think our gardens, libraries and museums team are also interested in. So mm. how do we support people who haven't got dementia, might not ever have dementia, but have some sort of impairment in their cognition. Which is quite a high proportion of yeah. the older population. Yeah. yeah. And mm. it can make people feel, it can encourage people to socially withdraw, to feel that they've got a loss of identity and who they are. So how do we support them through social prescribing, also through cultural offers or provision as well? And what, uh, yeah, what's the attitude to social prescribing generally among the, the general practice community would you say is it something that they've um, welcomed or again I mean I, everybody's different so I imagine it's not it's mixed yeah mm. I think it's mixed I think there is quite a lot of um, not respect but the, the people professionals like that idea that there's somewhere that they can refer people on to if they have a non-medical issue um, some professionals are skeptical um, about the, I think, the ability of link workers to support. 
And that partly depends on what's available in the community, but also what background the link workers had. Um, what kind of background do they tend to come from? It's varied. Um, often, so I'm just thinking about the link workers we've worked with. Some of them have a, a background in the voluntary sector and are very much embedded in their community and are concerned about making their community better and have lots of links because of that in the community sector. Others are more from a health background, so maybe have been healthcare assistants, might have been nurse or a midwife. Um, so they focus more on maybe the health side and they understand how the health system works and what their role could be in that. Um, and then some individuals have had very different backgrounds. So one person I know was an accountant and he went into social prescribing after his parent he found really had difficulties accessing uh, support for his parent when his parent had uh, dementia so but i think that there tends to be this voluntary sector background or healthcare background we've also had some younger link workers who've maybe got a background in psychology and are interested in developing their psychology experience to then go on to train as a psychologist um, and to give them that experience as well Mm. So very, very varied. Mm. Mm. <coughs> and and um, who, who are your collaborators in, in the study generally? Um, in, so it's like there are, there are overlaps. So with the one around the cultural sector and older people, it was the gardens and libraries and museums team mm -hmm. here. We also work with somebody called Helen Chatterjee, who's based at UCL. Karen Husk, who's based at the University of Plymouth. I'm trying to think who else worked with us on that project. Um, I think a lot of people came from, from Oxford on that project. Apologies if I've missed anybody. Well, I'm just thinking of Kamal, because he's... Oh, well, yes, he's, he's, he's here, but, yeah. part of here, but he's part of here, but he's a GP. Yes. So he's come at it from the GP perspective. Yes, yeah. yes so he's an academic GP mm. um, and uh, brings that experience and knowledge. Also, Jeff Wong is uh, an academic GP, has a background in GP or being a GP. Um, and then with the link worker study, the one that I mentioned at the very beginning, we have quite a few GPs in that. So uh, we have a GP from Hull and York University, um, a GP from Sheffield. Kamal's involved in Jeff in that one as well. Um, and then we've got Karen, who's on the AHRC project with us. We've got um, somebody who's more of a sort of sociologist on that with us. Um, a couple of people who are more sort of medical sociologists on that with us. Um, somebody from the uh, King's Fund is involved with us. We've got a patient representative on the study team as well. So it's quite a diverse mm, mm. group of people. So it's, I mean, it's very multidisciplinary, um, but that necessarily makes it a very collaborative yes. way of working. And is that how you've always worked, or is this more collaborative than how you've been in the past? I think it's definitely more collaborative than I've been in the past, um, although projects that I worked on, yeah, in, in Manchester were often with other departments, but within the same university. Um, so this you know it's quite different in terms of part of it is working out the bureaucracy and the you know you have different or universities contacting you about contracts and things like that so it's a bit more involved in that respect 
but it's nice because people also have different contacts themselves so you start to increase your sphere of contacts through having contacts in different universities I think which presumably leads to potential routes to new research in future yeah and they know of research that's going on that you don't know about that's maybe not directly the same but is linked to what you're doing so that can be helpful to sort of put your research in context um, so I found that quite useful and things like having access to link workers in different parts of the country having collaborators in different parts of the country means they can reach out to link workers in their area um, who they might already know and then they contact people they know so again helping with finding not collaborators in terms of the research day-to-day -day work but people who we might need to access to be involved in the study or to help us disseminate the findings um, it can be helpful having people in different parts of the country in different universities. Mm, mm. Yeah, that all sounds very good. Okay, so I'm just going to turn a bit more to um, your own personal experience of the of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, how did it change the way you worked when well, when the lockdown started, particularly? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. I remember having a conversation in one of these rooms downstairs, and. Um, one of the GP, um, you know, was saying, take stuff with, you know, sort of anything that you think you're going to need to work on um, because we might not be coming back into the office for a while. I was like, oh, no, I will be back in a couple of weeks. Little did I know. So it, I think it did come to as, as a shock for how long it took. And I teach as well. So I think that was a bigger issue, um, teaching, because... We still had to do it, mm. but it all had to go online. Mm. And although I had some meetings online, I wasn't used to teaching online. Um, so it's changed. It changed teaching. It sort of made us have to learn how to do teaching online. There were lots of courses suddenly set up for us to to work out how to do it in a interactive way with students. And I did quite a few bits of teaching online mm, um, mm. live as it were I mean you didn't just record a lecture and it was mixed so some right. were recorded and some were live teaching sessions as well and are your students medical students or are they uh, in social science departments mostly? Um, they are postgraduates uh, they come from medical disciplines so not necessarily just medics but you might have allied health professionals nurses physios you then also get some people who are more of a policy background in health or they might have a medical sociology. So it, it is varied, but I'd say a lot of them have um, a sort of medical background, maybe not, as I say, as a doctor, but other disciplines as mm, well. Mm. But they're, they're postgraduates, so they're you're post tending to be teaching in small groups yes. or one-to-one. -one. Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Um, so that was a big change. Changes in terms of not just being able to pop into somebody's room and say, oh, have you got five minutes? Having to arrange every meeting a bit more, you know, it wasn't as spontaneous. Um, getting used to presenting online at meetings, not necessarily teaching, but I remember the first presentation that I had to do online, I was terrified because is the technology going to work? Can I show my slides? You're talking to a screen so you don't get any feedback. But it's amazing how quickly you just get used to doing that. And actually now I don't mind doing that. And it's easier in some respects because you don't have to travel somewhere to present. Um, so, yeah, that was interesting. So has that um, remained part, has remote working remained part of what you do? 
Yeah, well, I actually live in Birmingham, so oh, right. I don't yes. come in that much. Mm. Um, probably three or four times a month, maximum. Um, so I moved to Birmingham during the pandemic uh, to be nearer my family. Um, so yeah, it's uh, yeah definitely changed and given me that bit more flexibility mm. to be able to do that. Um, and I feel that sometimes, I don't know whether, do we have more meetings? I feel possibly sometimes more online meetings than we would, because you can't have those informal conversations. So it does feel, definitely at the beginning, it felt really teams meeting heavy. Yes. Lots of meetings. So your calendar was full of, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm trying to now block out a Friday for just thinking and writing and things that I don't want to be disrupted by a meeting. Mm. doesn't mm. always happen, but yeah, I've tried to do that a bit more as well. Mm. And how threatened did you feel by the infection itself, by the possibility that you might catch it? I think I personally didn't feel too anxious um, because I was not in the, I, I don't know, I didn't feel that I came into a bracket that put me at great risk. But I actually, during the lockdown, I lived on my own and I moved back with my parents so that I was not on my own for three months. Um, and I was more worried about them. So I made sure I did all the shopping. I, you know, I constantly nagged them about, you know, washing hands and all that stuff. I became a bit like a parent, I think, in that <laughs> respect. Um, I mean, they, they were fine. And um, yeah, so I think I was more worried about them um, and, their well-being rather than my own mm, mm. and I actually didn't get Covid until this summer August 2022 when I went to the Edinburgh Festival and picked it up there so that was the first time I'd had it um, I won't want it again necessarily but <laughs> I'd had my injections so um, I think once the injections once vaccinations came in I felt much more confident yeah. Um, but yeah I think I see myself as quite physically resilient I don't I shouldn't say that touch wood <laughs> don't get colds and things like that very much I use public transport all the time so I don't know whether I've just developed a good immune system I, sh I say I shouldn't say that but um <laughs> so I suppose the only reason that I didn't want to get it was because I don't like not being able to have plans for work each day and I don't like not being able to carry that out mm, so mm. um but yeah personally I yeah I was more worried about other people than myself um, I think we've more or less got to the end. Um, yeah, and and you, uh, I mean, did you did you find having to work remotely um, psychologically difficult? Was that was that stressful for you? Um, not desperately, um, because I worked two days a week from home anyway, even before the pandemic. So I've always had a bit of home working. I didn't have kids, so I didn't have to worry about them. But you um, had your parents, so you had some company. Yeah, I had yeah. some company. I didn't have to do any washing because my <laughs> mum did that for me, so that was quite nice. Um, I don't think I'd have coped if I'd have been living on my own. and I think that would have been really, really hard. But because I, I had... I, I think I made very clear distinctions in the day. So I'd always go for a walk in the morning, like as if I'm going to work. I'd have break at 11 break for my lunch, break about three o'clock. I probably worked much longer though, hour-wise. I definitely worked much longer, um, you know, than I would necessarily. 
Um, sometimes it was a di bit difficult to switch off um, because you haven't got that commute home or that walk home. Um, but I, I think I, I, I managed relatively okay. I just missed pe seeing people in person mm, and, you mm. know, you do then, yeah, you, you, you do miss that sort of, it's really nice now that we are able to have meetings face to face mm. and to have that mixture. So not every meeting has to be face to face, but it's nice to have some, and especially when we're doing more sort of in-depth analysis, I think it's really good. We've got a meeting next month where we're all coming together in one of these rooms for the day to talk about the data in a bit more detail. Um, so I think sometimes we do need those face-to-face -face meetings. Mm, mm. And has the experience of, of uh, working through COVID changed your attitude or approach to your work? Um, not sure it's changed my approach to work. Um, I suppose it's just made me realise that you can't, you don't know what's around the corner. So you have to be a bit more... I, I, yeah, circumspect about things and, you know, um, I realise that some things can happen more efficiently, like having meetings online when you don't need to go up north or down south for a meeting, you can just do it online. So I suppose that's been the main thing for me is it, it's been quite good to be able, people have got so much use, more used to doing stuff online meeting-wise. So although I said it's nice to meet in person, and it is, it's given that sort of flexibility to be able to, you know, just put in a meeting with somebody from up in Scotland, you know, and it might just be an informal conversation, which you probably wouldn't have done as much prior to the pandemic, have a Teams meeting with them. I suppose you might have had a phone meeting, but do much more meetings where I can actually see the person as well, which is quite nice. Um, yeah. Good. Right. Thank you very much. It's okay.